Welcome to the Grox Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell, and I'll be your host today. If you look at the wide variety of creatures that live on land, you'll notice that they have many features in common. For example, myself, my cat, birds, and turtles all have jaws. And these jaws differ in terms of their fine details, but by and large, they're similar in structure. But when in evolutionary history did jaws originate? This is exactly the kind of question that paleontologists address by looking at the fossil record. Where did the anatomical traits that are common today come from, and how did they evolve? Our guest today is University of Chicago paleontologist Michael Coates. We're absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Coates on the show because he's an expert on the fin-to-limb transition and is also studying the evolutionary origins of jaws. Both limbs and jaws became prominent in the geological era known as the Devonian period, which occurred between about 420 and 360 million years ago. I started my interview by asking Dr. Coates what life on Earth was like at this time. The Devonian period is known as, uh, if you can say popularly, if you, if you pick up a book on fossil history or prehistoric life, the Devonian is often characterized as the age of fishes. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there was no life on land at that time. There was, um, but it precedes the arrival of backboned animals on land. During the, the Devonian period, we have evidence of invertebrates, um, arthropods, various things with you know, jointed exoskeletons and, and so forth. In fact, there's quite an abundance of life and plants, rich diversity of plants. On the continent margins, we don't have evidence of large, complex and expansive forests inland, but around the continent margins, there's increasing evidence of uh, complexity, trophic complexity in, in life. Um, but as far as backbone life at that point goes, as far as we know, the vertebrates are confined to marine and non-marine aquatic systems. And there's a great variety of fishes mm. at that time. So although there were insects of various sorts living on land, there were no land vertebrates, and the Devonian period was known for its diversity of fishes. Dr. Coates explained the variety of fish life in more detail. If you go fishing in the Devonian, tetrapods are extremely rare. Tetrapods with legs, toes, etc. Uh, they only turn up right at the end of the Devonian period. And the fish groups we find down there, while the bony fishes are present, forerunners of raven fishes, and you know sharks are present, um, there are many other kinds of fish that you just don't find after the Devonian. Sardis has an awful lot of jawless fishes about, but there are also groups in great abundance, uh, things called so-called spiny sharks, that we've had a great deal of difficulty knowing where they fit in the tree of life, Acanthodiums, a tactical name. They're abundant, and another group called the placoderms, mm -hmm. these sometimes called pans of fish or something like that, armor-plated, apparently toothless, seriously strange, built on a very different kind of body plan to what we used to. Um, they, again, are, are very abundant throughout the Devonian. 
Even though there were tons of very strange fish living in the Devonian period, like the armored-plated placoderms, which we do not see at all today, this is the period when limbs first evolved. In recent history, there's been some very exciting fossil finds that furthered our understanding of how limb evolution occurred. For example, fossil finds such as Acanthostega has informed us on how digits might have evolved. The earliest limbs for a long time were only known to have um, up to five digits. And apart from the fact that they've got digits and they don't have fin rays, etc., off the end of them, there's also this characteristic ratio of one bone articulating with the girdle. As you move out from that, then you have two. So it's a one to two ratio. Right. And then you have the wrist, ankle, and then you have the area of digits. So, what would the earliest limbs look like? And the, you know, the standard textbook story uh, was always the origin of the pentadactyl limb, mm -hmm. something special about five digits. That was the archetype, etc. So, the significance of the discoveries of the earliest complete limbs with digits from Devonian tetrapods, such as Acanthostega and Sulla character. Uh, Ichthystega and the, I think from Russia, Tilerpaton, was initially the discovery that they were polydactylous. And that was interesting because it broke, it, it showed the way that fossils can, uh, fossil data can give you a clue about primitive conditions that you would not be able to predict on the basis of living biodiversity. Fossils can always give you surprises in terms of lost. Um, ranges of anatomy. So during the Devonian, there were many tetrapod-like creatures with more than five digits. This suggests that polydactyly was an ancestral trait that was lost during evolutionary history, and now tetrapods only have five digits. But what about the rest of the limb? How did it evolve? When we move back from the digits and look at the, the shapes of the bones, the radius and the ulna and the humerus, the if you like, cardinal bones we find in forelimbs, the shapes of those are much more similar to the, um, the form of the bones we'd find otherwise in the fin. Mm. So in fact, excavating these limbs out of, out of the rock, finding them for the first time, it was not clear whether we'd find a fin at the end Mm. with fin rays, um, or whether digits would be present. So, you know, they would have fitted almost as easily in both. Now that we have much better information about increasingly limb-like fins mm -hmm. from fossil fishes, such as Pandorexes and Neoshubids, Tiktaalik, uh, if we've got a, a, an almost seamless transitional sequence. You can see the humerus, the, the, the bone that articulates directly with the shoulder. You can see that gradually flatten and begin to show the kind of flanges on it, which are giving us an indication of the patterning of the muscles, mm -hmm. um, which is giving us some clue about the repatterning. Because you need a, a, a more highly differentiated set of muscles for running a limb with an elbow and a wrist and digits off the end of it. You don't find that kind of elaboration of the musculature.
in a fin. Mm. Um, we don't yet have anything which shows a combination, if you like, strictly speaking, of you know, sort of digits and fin rays at the same time. There are still things to be discovered mm. there, but the sequence of change is 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 coming together very nicely. So we can see digits come on before you get complex rest. Mm. Rests are sort of intercalated later. Um, so yeah, we, we can unpack that quite nicely. And it also, I should add, functionally, fins evolved first in primitively and primarily aquatic tetrapods. Right. So we don't have a kind of muscular finned fish spending life on land mm -hmm. and then evolving limbs with digits. Our most primitive tetrapods with limbs with digits are primarily and primitively aquatic. Thanks to a wealth of fossil data, we now know quite a bit about limb evolution. When it comes to jaws, however, much less is known. The origin of jaws is, is a great question. Um, and I think it's one of the outstanding questions at the moment for students of vertebrate evolution. Um, the origin of anatomical novelty is is one of the big questions that vertebrate paleontologists are interested in. One of the big issues with studying jaw evolution is that nobody has yet found a fossil with a transitional jaw. Looking at living backbone jawless fish also isn't very helpful. Dr. Coates explains in more detail. Jaws are in some sense related to the gill skeleton, but Jaws themselves are not the same as gills. Jaws bear teeth. Jaws are built anatomically different, and the, early, the very earliest jaws we know, jaws all the way through, are different from gills. I cannot find you a fossil which shows a set of jaws which are a little more similar to the gills, and then another one which shows you know, very nearly a set of gills running all the way through. So these are the gill skeleton that you'd see in the throat of a shark or a raven fish or something like that. So, if jaws have always been different, it then begs the question of, you know, how were they? Are they something new that was built in front of the gill skeleton? Mm -hmm. So what can we learn from living forms? Can we, you know, the standards, if, if the fossils aren't delivering, can we look at living backbone animals that look for jawless forms and understand the origin of jaws by looking at them. Well, we've got today lampreys and we've got hagfish to look at. And lampreys and hagfish have gill skeletons, but they're built even more differently from the gills and jaws, you know, no jaws at all. But there are problems there because they're gill skeletons in a different place. It's a basket, gills are hung on the inside. If you look in the throat of a shark or a bony fish, the gills are hinged, it's not a basket, they're thoroughly hinged, and they're on the inside, the gills are hung on the outside. So we have to think about a translation from the skeleton from outside the gills to the inside the gills, and we now have to start thinking about how do you send this system and modify it, redeploy it perhaps forwards in front of the gills to build the jaws. Lately, however, work by Dr. Coates and others has improved our understanding of the complex evolutionary relationships between Devonian fishes like spiny sharks and the armor-plated placoderms. This, in turn, has helped paleontologists understand what the first jaws might have looked like. 
Now, part of the problem is that we haven't known what to make of some of the Devonian fishes. There are these early fish groups, and understanding their relationships to modern fishes has been problematic. And the two groups that sit there are placoderms, mm -hmm. which look seriously odd by modern standards. They're just weird and different. And, um, and then there are this other group, the, the acanthodians, the spiny sharks. Now we're just beginning to see the whole framework taken to pieces. Um, there are a couple of groups of us who are presenting heterodox family trees of early vertebrate life. And what's happening is we're taking these groups of placoderms and the acanthodians apart, saying these are not natural groups of organisms, not like, say, the mammals or the sharks themselves. They're actually a rag bag of all sorts of different kinds of early jawed vertebrates. Mm. And reassembling them on the tree makes a real difference. We're beginning to um, build a new map of the earliest evolution or the earliest pattern of, of jaw vertebrate life. That means that we can begin to look at some of these early jaw vertebrates, some of these strange things down there, and say, ah, some of these are a great deal more primitive than others, mm -hmm. branch off earliest. And that gives us a clue about what to look for in primitive conditions in all those fishes we know with jaws. Right. So there is a, we're beginning to, um, you know, untie or cleave through this Gordian knot or whatever metaphor you want to pick for it. Mm -hmm. And we're beginning to get a clue about what the earliest jaws are like and the earliest tooth systems. Given this new progress, I asked Dr. Coates to speculate on what the first jawed fish might have looked like. He described a truly bizarre fish that might fit well in Alice in Wonderland. The first jawed fish, I think it would have had pretty, um, it would have been some kind of placoderm. It would mm -hmm. probably belong to a group called the Antiarchs, which is, you know, specialized jargon. Uh, these Antiarchs, um, they look like armor-plated tadpoles. They're <laughs> uh, paired fins. They've only got one set of paired fins, so they don't have hips. They've only got fins coming off the shoulders, and the only, you know this is true of a lot of the jawless fishes. They only have fins coming off the shoulder level. Mm -hmm. uh, the fins coming off the shoulder level look like a pair of um, stilts. They almost look like appendages that should belong to a lobster or something. <laughs> the jaws are underneath the head. They're they're placed on the underside at the front, and they look little more. Uh, the upper jaws are very rudimentary. The lower jaw looks like a pair of simple shovels, <laughs> as if this thing is um, adapted for just grazing or picking up rubbish off the uh, off some kind of muddy substrate, something like that. I think those are probably the most primitive sets of jaws we know, these things that be belong to this group, Antioch. So far, we've been talking about two traits, jaws and limbs, which became prominent during the Devonian period. We've learned that there were many strange fish with peculiar jaws, as well as early tetrapods with eight digits on each limb. But we don't see that level of diversity in limb and jaw shape today. What happened? Well, extinction events often drive evolutionary change, and two of these occurred during the Devonian period. In the history of life on Earth, there are five 
big extinction events. The, the best known one is the, the end of the Cretaceous, that's when the dinosaurs bought it, that's the, the one, you know, worst weekend in life on Earth, and, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, the biggest one is at the end of the Permian period, uh, popularised in books with titles like When Life Nearly Died and, and things. There is a big one in the Devonian, but it's not at the end of the Devonian, and it's called the Calvasar Event, and there's a great deal of debate about causes, and indeed whether it's a legitimate event, in the sense of, is it possibly an artefact of, of how we observe things in the record? Um, it's certainly marked by the disappearance of coral reefs, for example, uh, something that we worry about now with ongoing you know, concerns about loss of biodiversity and the extinction of reefs nowadays is an indicator that something's changing, something's wrong. Um, so in the Devonian, reef systems disappear and take a long time to return. That's the Kelbasser event. In a sense, the fishes, the vertebrate backbone animals, vertebrates, seem to sail through that relatively unaffected. There's turnover. Things go, but things turn up to replace them. However, at the end of the Devonian, for a long time it's been recognised, there is some sort of turnover. The vertebrates are affected at the end of Devonian, at a second event called the Hangenberg event, which, if you were to look at the kind of records where people search for signals of major extinction events, isn't a particularly major peak, Mm -hmm. but it affects the vertebrates profoundly. What Dr. Coates is saying is that this extinction event at the end Devonian resulted in a dramatic change in the types of vertebrates we see on our planet. In effect, the end of the Devonian marks the beginning of modern life on Earth. It's long been recognized that there are characteristic faunas of vertebrates in the Devonian, which differ from those you get in the the next section of the geological record, the Carboniferous period, or over here in the States, the next bit would be called the Mississippian. And it's really the beginning of the coal measures and things like that. And you find very different fish groups. In the Carboniferous, you also find lots of the earliest tetrapods. Those are the, if you like, proto-amphibians and the forerunners of the amniotes reptiles, mammals, snakes, and things like that. So there's a radiation of uh, vertebrates living on land after the Devonian. Uh, so that's things with legs, tails, and so forth. And there are different fish groups. If you, if you look in the, the aquatic ecosystems, you find sharks and you find rayfin fish, bony fishes, you know, not so different from what we see around today. This extinction event actually resulted in a very rapid change of the relative abundance of species on Earth. We get an expansion of the ray-finned fishes, which include the vast majority of fish species alive today, and we get tetrapods dominating the land. Yeah, at the, begin- at the end of the Devonian, what we thought was a, might have been a sort of gradual turnover from one set of things to another, um, which would imply we ought to see placoderm-like fishes tailing off and the lowfin fishes, you know, gradually dropping in numbers, and a, and a sort of gradual replacement by 
increasing numbers of tetrapods and more ray fin fish and sharks and things like that. We don't get that at all. We have uh, a sudden cut-off of lowfin fishes uh, and pachyderms and acanthodians, cut right down in numbers. And then we have something of a, of a gap. It's, uh, it's not entirely lack of data. We have fossil localities, but what we find is low diversity. And then we get a re-radiation of groups. This is what we're, we're exploring at the moment mm -hmm. in the lab. But this is certainly something we're, we're finding out. That's when the rayfin fishes, which today, the teleosts, the most abundant, diverse group of backbone animals on the planet today, um, they first radiate, not the teleosts, but the, the larger group that belong to the rayfin fishes. They really radiate seriously for the first time after the Devonian. This is all new stuff, new body shapes, new kinds of jaws, new forms, things we've never seen before. Um, and the tetrapods get going too. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, as far as my group's concerned, this whole thing started off thinking about what's going on with the origin of tetrapods. Mm -hmm. So the start of this, for us, our research in this area was looking at the big shape of early tetrapod evolution. We know they come out of a group of lopin fishes in the Devonian. We know the earliest limbed tetrapods are beginning to diversify at the end of the Devonian. Some of these animals are, have received a lot of attention, things like Tiktarlik, found by Neil Shubin and colleagues in the Arctic, uh, stuff from Russia, the Pandarichthians, um, and then a, a variety of animals ending in Stiga, Acanthostiga, mm -hmm. Ichthyostiga, and so forth. These early limbed tetrapods, they're all coming on stream towards the end of the Devonian. But what's strange is when you pass through after the end of the Devonian. You don't find any of them. It's a sudden change. It's a bottleneck. So this end Devonian extinction event was a critical event in ev vertebrate evolutionary history. I asked Dr. Coates what might have caused it. Well, it turns out that nobody knows for sure, but there are some clues. We can't point at any kind of smoking gun mm -hmm. at the moment, but there are a number of factors that have been um, raised that's significant in this. For starters, at the end of the Devonian, the Hangenberg event, this second extinction event, is marked by a pair of bands of black shale that are found globally. You can find different deposits across the globe where you find the signature of black shale with a lot of pyrite in etc. So one of the arguments is this black shale is formed in anoxic conditions. Mm -hmm. So global anoxia, is that a problem? Well, what might have caused that? Or would you just define anoxia? Oh, yeah, low oxygen levels. Low oxygen Yeah, okay. so stagnant conditions. Okay. So uh, that's surprising. So what might or, you know, what might have caused that? Climate change is uh, a factor too. People, uh, the paleoclimate people point to, um, um, to put it very simply, in one sense, you've got a, a, a crash in the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 10 times their formal level to the, the kind of levels we have now. So it's almost the opposite of uh, greenhouse, global greenhouse effect. So you, you, know, you lose the uh, CO2 levels, crash, um, and global temperature drops. Hmm. There is evidence of possible global glaciation. So temperature drop, glaciation, that means you get sea level drop as well. With sea level drop, you lose a lot of 
coastal margin. Mm -hmm. That is likely to lead, lead to result in a loss of biodiversity because it's the, the margins of the continents where you get increased or you know, elevated levels of diversity. Right. So there may have been a whole series of factors or one thing leading to another. One odd feature of this extinction event is that some people think that trees might be to blame. Dr. Coates explains this in more detail. Where did the CO2 go? You know, what level to drops in, in CO2? What might have been in a factor carbon sink mm -hmm. at that point? Um, some people have worried about, worried, or pointed to uh, trees. It's the plants what have done it, which is um, sort of the opposite way around, you know, sort of popular thinking at the moment in the sense of we love our trees, etc. But, you know, did they have a, a corrosive effect on life on Earth back in the Devonian? Certainly there's a lot of change at that point in terms of the evolution of structurally or architecturally modern forests. They are, occur de novo. They, they've never been there before the Devonian. Mm. Within the Devonian or early in the Devonian, through that period, plants invent or start using lignin in large quantities, which allows them to get tall, number one, so you've got bigger plants. But you also get plants with modular construction. That means that they grow and shed leaves and shed fronds and that kind of thing. But that's stuff that's taking mm. carbon out in the atmosphere and getting dumped and ultimately buried. Mm. So is it suddenly massive forests pulling carbon out in the atmosphere? Well, it's been argued that they're just insufficient. There's still, we're talking about continent margins, no evidence of anything like the Amazon rainforest. Whether that would be sufficient to change the climate significantly. But it's not merely uh, CO2 levels dropping, there are also drastic changes in the level of oxygen at that time. So we've got a period of atmospheric instability. We have evidence of glaciation. We have evidence of anoxia. All of these factors may be contributing to whatever kind of instability left, led to a massive biotic, well, massive, some kind of biotic crisis, which really affected the vertebrates at that point. Overall, what I found most fascinating about my conversation with Dr. Coates is this idea that before the end Devonian extinction, there were many strange animals with a variety of limbs and jaws. But after going through this bottleneck, you lose this variety and end up with the modern limbs and jaws that you see today. I asked Dr. Coates if this was the right way to look at this piece of evolutionary history. Yes, it's completely legitimate. It's a very good point. Yeah because there are different kinds of jaw systems down there. The, the placoderm jaws are built very differently from the kinds of jaws we see in sharks. And they, in their own way, are built somewhat differently from the jaws you know, you'd see in a, a dog or a cat or ourselves. You mm. know. There are a variety of different kinds of jaw systems, different tissues contributing to jaws. The relationship of the jaws to the muscles that run them is different. Um, and the relationship to the kind of teeth and how they generate teeth, that's different. So jaws are pretty diverse within the vertebrates. You're absolutely right in saying that the jaws down in the Devonian, in a sense, are more diverse. And then we've seen a, a more, you know, a restricted set of jaw apparatus belongs to those vertebrates that make it through the end of the Devonian, and then those subsequently re-radiate. Mm -hmm. But we've lost, who knows what would it, what it would be like if in a sense, some of that grade of fishes had made it through.
Well, it was an absolute pleasure having Dr. Michael Coates on the Grok Science Show. If you would like to hear more from us, you can find our website by Googling the Grok Science Show. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. From everyone at Grox, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, Elise Kovic, Forrest Goldman, and myself, Joanna Rowell, thanks for listening, and keep on grokking.